All right, everybody, come on in and grab a seat. There'll be a few, quite a few people trickling in. So we're going to continue in our study of bibliology, the doctrine of Scripture. We have talked about the authority of Scripture, that how when the Bible speaks, God speaks. We've talked about the canon of Scripture, what books belong in the Bible. The Bible is obviously not just one book. It's 66 books. What should those books be? Uh, We talked about the inspiration of Scripture, how God inspires His Word. We've talked about a lot, and today we're going to talk about something that actually distinctively and uniquely makes us evangelicals, and that is the inerrancy of Scripture. <coughs> I still have my cough, so we're just all going to have to deal with that together, so I apologize. Going on five weeks now, it might or might not be tuberculosis, so I'm glad I shook everyone's hand. I'm kidding. You should be good. You should be fine now. <coughs> but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the doctrine of inerrancy. Before I do that, though, I want to give you a little bit of history on why this is a big deal uh, in evangelicalism. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, what you got specifically coming out of Germany, because those were some of the best universities, is you got what was known as theological liberalism. Theological liberalism. Now, when I say theological liberalism, don't think political liberalism, all right? So when I say liberal or conservative in the context of theology, don't think politics at all. Someone who is theologically liberal is someone who denies the supernatural elements in Scripture. So someone who's theologically liberal might study God's Word, but they might study it kind of like you would study Greek mythology. They study it as something they don't believe is inerrant and is really God's Word. Sometimes those who are theologically liberal deny the the deity of Christ. Sometimes those who are theologically liberal will deny His atonement or these kind of things. So theological liberalism is where you end up denying not only the supernaturalness of Scripture, but certain elements within Scripture. And that basically gets transported through biblical studies and universities and seminaries and these kind of things over to the United States. And so what you have in the mid-1900s, so within several of our, some people in here within your lifetime, is you have the majority, and this is true even to today, out of the hundreds of seminaries, Bible colleges, and divinity schools across the United States, there are only a handful that still believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, which is crazy, considering that it's a doctrine that as far as when you think of church history, that everyone has held that God's Word is perfect, there are no errors, to know today that the majority of the places that train pastors don't believe in inerrancy is crazy, is crazy. And so what happened by the mid-1900s is in just about every denomination, you had a very, very liberal slant to that denomination. And so what happened is you got what is known as a conservative resurgence. Within several denominations, you had people that began fighting for the inerrancy of Scripture again. You had that with, uh, in Presbyterianism. You had that in the Southern Baptist world. Uh, you never had it, by the way, in Methodism. If you've ever wondered why a lot of Methodist churches today are kind of squishy and watered down, it's because though all Protestant denominations were hit by theological liberalism, you never had a conservative resurgence within Methodism. Now, within the Southern Baptist world, most of the Southern Baptist seminaries that were there to train ministers had drifted into theological liberalism. So I want to use uh, Southern Seminary as an example of that. Today, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, is uh, one of the best seminaries in the country. It's the largest Protestant seminary in the country, and it's fantastic. But it's only because of this shift through the theological liberalism. So let me give you a quick history on this. Uh, In the mid-1900s, it's Southern Seminary they had gone very, very liberal, all right, as far as denying supernaturalness of Scripture, some people denying the deity of Christ, denying uh, that it was God's Word, all these kind of things. They had a uh, lesbian wedding in the basement of Southern Seminary at this point, 
Uh, they used to have a New Testament professor named Molly Marshall, and she would get up, and here's how she would begin her classes. She would say, for God so loved the world that she gave her only begotten daughter, that whoever believes in her will not perish but have everlasting life. If you have a problem with that, you have a problem with me, and you need to drop the class. That's how she would start the class. So you have this perversion of theology, this perversion of doctrine, this perversion of ethics going on in all these denominations, and then you start to get this, some good guys. You start to get guys coming in and pushing again for biblical inerrancy. And the guy that did that at Southern Seminary was Al Mohler. You might have heard of him today, Dr. Mohler. Uh, He was the guy that came in, and he made the faculty there sign a doctrinal statement. So if you wouldn't affirm and sign that doctrinal statement, you would be fired, And so the professors protested and the students protested. They actually sat outside of his office to protest, and he bought them pizza. He was turning the other cheek as they were protesting. And the professors would get up, and they would pray things like this, God, we thank you for this provision, but not the means by whence it came. Meaning, thank you for this pizza, but we hate Dr. Mueller. That's what they were doing. So today, all of the major Southern Baptist seminaries are conservative again, believe in inerrancy because of this resurgence. But this is within our DNA To know that the majority of seminaries, divinity schools, Bible colleges don't believe in inerrancy is crazy. So a lot of people just go to train for ministry and end up losing their faith because they go to the wrong place. And so what we're going to talk about today is what is known as the inerrancy of Scripture, okay? The inerrancy of Scripture. Let me give you a definition. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts, let me pause there real quick. We're going to have a whole lesson where we talk about what's called textual criticism, about how things are copied and copied and copied and copied. When we talk about inerrancy, though, what we're saying is that in the original manuscripts, there are no errors, okay? We're going to talk about how we can still trust our Bibles today. Jeff is actually going to do a whole lesson on that, Uh, but it is important in our definition that we say the original manuscripts. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Let me say that again. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. <clears throat> okay, let's, let's do some preliminary things with inerrancy. You guys excited? I'm excited. Okay, all right, everybody, I got thumbs up. We're ready. Okay. Uh, yes, I had my Red Bull, for those of you that are wondering. Okay. Traditionally, you could use these terms, infallibility and inerrancy, to mean the same thing. Because guess what infallibility means? That something doesn't have mistakes. And guess what inerrancy means? It doesn't have mistakes. So traditionally, you could use these terms kind of synonymously back and forth if you were to talk about what you believe about Scripture. What happened, though, is this term, infallible, infallibility, started over time to take on a new meaning in recent theology, okay? So what infallibility typically means today, if somebody uses infallibility, infallibility means that the Bible is perfect when it comes to matters of faith and practice, But not necessarily the stuff it says about history, that's kind of old, they thought the world was flat and these kind of things. Not necessarily the stuff about history or science or geography or anything like that. But when it comes to our faith, when it comes to doctrine, that's what someone who only believes in infallibility would say. So they would say that the Bible is inspired when it comes to matters of faith and practice, but not when it pertains to all matters, okay? That's what infallibility has a a sense sometimes to mean today. We would affirm something larger than that. We would affirm inerrancy, which includes infallibility. We would say that God's word is not only perfect in doctrine, yes and amen, but it is perfect on everything that it talks about. The Bible is not primarily a science textbook, and it's not primarily a history textbook, but what it says about science and history are absolutely true. If it's God's word, it can't lie on some things and not lie on others. Does that make sense? 
The problem with just affirming infallibility and saying that it's true when it comes to religion but not true when it comes to other things is where do you start drawing the line? Where do you get to start deciding what parts are needed for religion and what parts are not? Apparently, God thinks all of his word is needed for us in our faith and our worship of him. Okay? So does everybody understand the difference between these two terms? Now, again, people sometimes just use those synonymously. So if somebody says, yeah, I believe the Bible's infallible, don't be like, heretic, all right? They probably just mean that it's perfect. But in theology, there is a technical distinction between this word, which means that it's inspired when it comes to theology, whereas this one that would say it's inspired in everything, in everything, history, science, geography, whatever it might be, okay? All right, another preliminary thing. We believe here at Parkway in what is called (coughs) verbal plenary inspiration. Jeff mentioned this last week. Verbal plenary inspiration. What do all those weird words mean? Well, verba is the Latin word for words. What we mean by that is that Scripture is inspired down to the very word, okay? It's not just that the general concepts of Scripture are perfect. Every word is as God wanted it to be. You know why? Because words affect those concepts, You can't just say the Bible's generally inspired in what it's saying, but not to every word, because those words affect those big concepts. Both Paul and Jesus make arguments based on one word of Scripture. Jesus will talk about not a jot or tittle passing away. The Apostle Paul will say things like, well, we know that Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament because God promises to Abraham that his seed, singular, through his seed, in Hebrew, Zerah, all the nations would be blessed. So they're even appealing sometimes to the grammar of words and these kind of things. So when we say that the Bible's inspired, first of all, we believe that it's inspired and inerrant down to the very word. Plenary means all of it. Plenary means all of it is inspired. It's not just that some of it's inspired. It's that all of it. Verbal plenary inspiration means that you believe that it's inspired and inerrant down to the very word and that all of it is inspired. That's what we're trying to say. That's what we're trying to say. Okay. Now... Let me say something real quick, and this is not to diss on this if you like this, okay? So I'm just, I just want to talk about it real quick, some cautions. Uh, Red letter Bibles. People know what I'm talking about? This is where the words of Christ are in red. Okay, now everybody hear me. Those are fine. If you want to use those, those are fine. If you have one of those, don't go get a new one, okay? That's totally fine. But let me give you some cautions with that, okay? Let me just give you some cautions with that. Number one, don't think that the red words are more inspired or inerrant than the black words. Who inspired the red words? God. Who inspired the black words? God. It's they're equally inspired, okay? The Holy Spirit that's inspiring Christ is the same Holy Spirit that's inspiring Paul. It's all God's word. Don't put Jesus and Paul in a cage match against each other. You'll see people do that when they say things like, well, Paul preached against homosexuality, but Jesus never did. Jesus preaches against homosexuality when Paul preaches against it, all right? Not only that, and Jesus, by the way, does condemn uh, what he calls sexual morality, which would include that, so in a sense, he does preach against that, but that kind of thinking gets you in a lot of trouble. So be careful of thinking. If you have a red letter Bible, totally fine. Just in your mind, know these words are not more special than these words. They're all God's words. They're all equally God's word. They're all equally inspired. Everybody with me on that? Second thing to keep in mind <coughs> is that we probably don't have the exact words that Jesus used. Why? Because Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic, and the New Testament is written in Greek. What Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are doing is they're giving us a summary of what Jesus said, okay? They're not giving us what's called in theology, it's called the ipsissima verba, the very words of Jesus. They're giving us a summary of what he said. He probably didn't speak in Greek. He might have known a little Greek, but he probably spoke in Aramaic, and they're summarizing it. 
If you get up and you see that Jesus preaches a sermon and you read it and it takes you 30 seconds, do you think he just preached a 30-second sermon? No, he probably spoke maybe for hours and they're just summarizing and condensing what he said. So we want to keep that in mind, okay? We want to keep that in mind. And then lastly, again, red letter Bibles are fine. I'm just giving you this to make sure in our thinking, we're thinking about all of the Bible is equally inspired. Lastly, I've seen some red letter Bibles that don't actually have all the words of Jesus. The first four chapters in Revelation is Jesus talking to the churches. Why wouldn't you put those in red or other places? So you have to start as an interpreter kind of making a judgment on where you want those to be. So having said all that, those are fine. Those are good. Those are fine, okay? Does Zach dislike those? No. Okay? But just be careful that you don't think in your mind these words are somehow more God's words than these. They're all equally God's word. With me? Everybody with me? Okay. Did I offend anybody? Okay. I was told to stop asking that question. Stop asking why I offend people. They said, listen, just teach the Bible and don't care what people think. That's hard for me. I have a fear of man. I want you to like me. Okay. Let's talk about uh, some, some Bible passages that talk about inerrancy that talk about inerrancy, okay? Now, I've just given you some. Some of these, there's a lot more than these. Some of these would even be better than the ones that I picked. I just wanted to give you some examples of the kind of things the Bible says about itself. Let's look at these. (coughs) 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. We talked about this. This is, by the way, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is kind of like our memory verse for this whole semester, okay? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible itself is seen as coming from the mouth of God. When I breathe out, there's just hot air. When God breathes out, it's his word. It's the Bible, okay? So it's perfect because God is perfect. He cannot misspeak. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. What does that mean? I know all of us in here are really into smelting and all of us are really into uh, metallurgy and these kind of things. So let me just explain what's going on. What you would do is you would take a clump of silver or gold or some type of precious metal, and they would heat it up to where it became like liquid. <coughs> and then the impurities of that metal would kind of rise to the top. And you'd take a little spoon kind of thing, and you'd scoop it off very carefully, lest you burn your hand off, scoop it off and move it to the side. What the text is saying here is that God's word is like doing that process seven times, meaning the fullness of this, that it is absolutely perfect. God's word is pure silver, no dross. It's pure gold, no dross. That's what it's trying to say. It is a strong statement about God's word being absolutely perfect. Psalm 19, seven through eight. Listen to all the things it says about God's word. God's word, excuse me. The law of the Lord is perfect. There it is, perfect. If you want a good term, you want a good uh, synonym for inerrancy when it comes to the Bible, perfect is right there. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's using (coughs) several different descriptors to talk about God's word and its perfection, its purity, how it encourages, these kind of things. Hebrews 6.18, why did I put this one here? It says that it is, quote, impossible for God to lie. Not merely that he can do it and he doesn't, he can't do it. It would be a weakness to him. It would be evil. Lying is not a good thing. It's a weakness. It's a shackle. God cannot lie. So kind of like the uh, syllogism that Jeff put up last week where he said, step one, God cannot lie. Step two, the Bible is God's word. Therefore, QED, the Bible cannot lie. That's why I put that passage in there. If you understand the Bible is God's word and that God cannot lie, you must understand that uh, the Bible is perfect, i.e. inerrant. John 14, 26. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is a promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. How do we know as they're writing scripture that they are writing exactly what God wants them to write? And it's because Jesus says, my Holy Spirit is going to guide you in this process. He's going to protect you. He's going to bring what I've said to your remembrance. And these are just some passages. I mean, we could have put a bunch of passages in here to show, but the one thing I just wanted you to see is that the Bible itself testifies to its own perfection. Let me ask you this question. <laughs> well, I'll wait. I'll wait to ask that question. Okay. Now, we've talked a little bit about this. Jeff talked about this. We talked about this actually with the youth as well, but I want to mention it one more time. This is a circular argument. Okay? This is a circular argument. Now, are there other things that we can point to to show that the Bible is right? Yes, we can talk about fulfilled prophecy. We can show when a book was written and what it prophesied. Yes, we can talk about consistency, having 66 books and all these different authors over thousands of years or whatever. Yes, we can talk about all these different things. But ultimately, the reason that we believe the Bible is inerrant is because God's inerrant word says that it's inerrant. That's why we believe it. Now you say, wait a second. That's a circular argument. Circular arguments are only wrong if you're wrong. Does that make sense? Circular arguments are only wrong if the premise that you start with is incorrect. If the premise that you start with is correct, then your circular argument is absolutely correct. Let me give you an example. The reason we don't like circular arguments is somebody will say something like this. You should vote for this politician. And I say, why? And they say, because he's the best or she's the best politician. That's a circular argument in a bad sense. This person's the best because they're the best. That's a bad circular argument. Good circular arguments, though, are things like proving a math problem by appealing to the laws of how you do math. Right? So just because something's a circular argument doesn't mean it's wrong. It can be. People abuse circular arguments all the time. But in and of itself, it doesn't have to be. Anytime, and Jeff mentioned this, uh, I thought, really well last week, anytime you appeal to an ultimate authority, you can't appeal beyond that authority. That's not just something we have to deal with as Christians in the Bible. It's anybody. If somebody says, I'll only believe what's reasonable to me, and I say, why? And they say, well, because it's reasonable. It makes sense logically. I, I can understand it. Well, you've just created a circular argument. Or I'll only believe what I can get through my senses, what's empirical. Why? Well, because my, my senses give me information, and they tell me what's right. And You see, anytime you appeal to an ultimate authority, you are making a circular argument. Like Jeff said last week, if there was a reason you could prove the Bible by taking a history book off the shelf, you've now put that history book above the Bible. Or a science textbook off the shelf, you've now put that science textbook above the Bible. You've said, this is my standard. Now let's see if the Bible fits. And that is completely backwards. For us, the Bible is at the top, and everything has to fit on that or we get rid of it. All right? Or we get rid of it. So it is a circular argument, but circular arguments are not necessarily wrong. Okay? <clears throat> now, I want to give some quotes about the Bible from church history. So we've looked at how the Bible will talk about its own perfection, and we looked about how the Bible will talk about it being inerrant and these kind of things. I want to give you some quotes of what Christians have believed throughout church history about inerrancy, and here's why I do this. It's, it's become kind of vogue and avant-garde for pastors and those coming out of seminary to say that they don't like the term inerrancy. They'll say, I believe the Bible, I like the Bible, but I don't like the term inerrancy. That seems to be kind of a modern invention is what they'll say. The idea that we have to have such precision in how perfect we think the Bible is is something that really came, uh, you know, to pass recently. It's kind of an American idea. Uh, one theologian called it a, quote, stupid American doctrine and these kind of things. And, uh, and so what I want to do is I want to show you some quotes from church history 
to show you that though they don't use the word all the time, inerrancy, the concept that the Bible has no errors, has no falsehoods, does not affirm anything that's contrary to fact, is well attested in church history. Does that make sense? So what I'm trying to do is for anybody that says, I believe the Bible, I just don't like this real strict, stringent, kind of fundamentalist sounding term of inerrancy, I want to show that the Bible being perfect is something that Christians have always held. So let me quote some from early church fathers. You don't have to know who these people are. Just, for most of them, they are uh, early leaders in the church after the time of the apostles. Some of them are the reformers, uh, and then even some that are a little more recent. Let me give you some quotes. <coughs> Clement of Rome says, you have searched the scriptures which are true, which were given by the Holy Spirit. You know that nothing unrighteous or counterfeit is written within them. Though he's not using the term inerrancy, when he says there's nothing counterfeit, nothing false in it, that's, we mean the same thing by that. Irenaeus said that the scriptures are indeed perfect. Tertullian said the statements of Holy Scripture will never be discordant with truth. That's pretty good. That's similar to our definition, that the Bible doesn't affirm anything that's contrary to fact. St. Augustine says this, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that their authors were completely free from error. Completely free from error. That's inerrancy. And if in these writings I am perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed to the truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said or I myself have failed to understand it, concerning which it would be wrong to doubt that they are free from error. St. Anselm, for I am sure that if I say anything which is undoubtedly contradictory to Holy Scripture, it is wrong. He says, anything I say that doesn't line up with Scripture, it's wrong. And if I become aware of such a contradiction, I do not wish to hold that opinion. I like that because it's kind of like uh, from The Office where, Michael, or where Dwight Schrute says, uh, anytime I'm about to do something, I ask myself, would an idiot do that? And if so, I do not do that thing. That's kind of what he's saying. Anytime I see that one of my views is off with Scripture, I, do not longer, I, do, I no longer wish to hold that position. Okay? Martin Luther said not only that God's word did not err, but that it cannot err. Francis Turretin, a Reformed theologian in the 1600s, said, listen to this definition. <coughs> the sacred writers were so acted upon and inspired by the Holy Spirit as to the things themselves and as to the words, there's verbal inspiration, uh, as to be kept free from all error. That's inerrancy. And their writings are truly authentic and divine. The prophets did not fall into mistakes in those things which they wrote as inspired men and as prophets, not even in the smallest particulars. Otherwise, faith in the whole of Scripture would be rendered doubtful. Okay? It would be rendered doubtful. Okay. Let me ask a question for you guys and tell me what you think here. Is the following sentence true? Okay, we're going to have a little, little pop quiz here, so everybody pay attention. Is the following sentence true? If one part of the Bible is false, then it is all false. Don't answer yet. Think about whether or not that's true. If one part of the Bible is false, then all of the Bible is false. Is that true or not? Let's take a vote. Ooh, I like this, because this really gets people out of their comfort zone. If you think that is a true statement, raise your hand. No shame here, no judgment. If you think that is a false statement, raise your hand. Very good. Okay, about, it's, uh, it's about split 50-50. <clears throat> the sentence is false, okay? If one part of the Bible is false, it does not therefore necessarily mean all of it is false. The Bible could be false in one thing, but say something else that's true. In fact, I was talking to an atheist one time, and he said, I don't believe the Bible. And I said, wait, what parts of it don't you believe? It says that Caesar Augustus existed. It says that Jerusalem's in Israel. 
I mean, what, there's a lot that it says that's true. You have to now tell me what parts you don't believe and what parts you do. So it's not true that if one part of it's wrong, therefore all of it's wrong. Now listen to the next sentence and tell me if this is true or false. If one part of the Bible is false, then I don't know whether or not the others are false as well. Is that true or false? Who thinks it's true? I'm giving you a hint. I'm giving you a hint. Okay. So here's what I'm saying. It could be the case. I'm not saying that it is, but we're just doing a hypothetical. It could be the case that one part of the Bible could be false and the other parts still be true. That's true. That could be the case. However, if that were the case, you couldn't, you would, you would doubt all of it. You couldn't really trust all of it, right? If I give you a tub of water and I say, there's just a little bit of cyanide in here. I hope you don't drink the cyanide parts of the water. You're going to say, I'm not going to drink any of that because I don't know where the cyanide is, right? It's the same way in God's word. If you don't affirm inerrancy, you start to question other things in the Bible. If you start thinking there could be errors in God's word, then you're going to start being more lax on the commands you don't like as much. You're going to start being lax on the doctrines you don't like as much. So it's not true that if there was a falsehood, the rest of it would be false, but it is true that if there was a falsehood, it would throw doubt on all of it. It would throw doubt on all of it. It's kind of like a chain. How many links do you have to break to break a chain? Just one. So if you do that, in a sense, you kind of break this chain of God's inerrancy and being able to trust his word. So it's very important that we hold to this idea of inerrancy. Now, let me give some clarifications about inerrancy, about what we do and don't mean. Number one, the Bible can have seeming but not real contradictions. The Bible can have seeming but not real contradictions. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is there are no contradictions in Scripture. Does everybody know what a contradiction is? Tucker, give me an example of a contradiction. You raised your hand, so I'm putting you on the spot. Well, so, so, okay, I'm glad you said this. So when, he, so when his example was, a contradiction would be, I'm going to play lacrosse tonight, but then an hour later you say, I'm going to see a movie tonight. That's not a contradiction because you could do both. You could play lacrosse and then you could go see a movie. A contradiction would be something like, I'm going to play lacrosse tonight and I'm not going to play lacrosse tonight. Does that make sense? A contradiction <clears throat> is where you both affirm something and deny something and mean the same thing at the same time, Okay. So if I say, my name is Zach, my name is not Zach, my name is not Zach, that's a contradiction. Does that make sense? Now, let me give you a little, uh, a little fun sentence here. This sentence is false. Is that sentence true or false? Take a second. Think about it. This sentence is false. Is, it, is, it, is that sentence true or false? You see, it's tricky because if you say that it's true, it claims to be false. So that it's, it's true that it claims to be false. So then it'd be false. But if it's false that it's false, then it's true again. And you get in this weird circle. Do you see? The reason this is a tricky sentence is because this is a contradiction. It is affirming a positive while also affirming a negative at the same time. That's why it's a tricky sentence. I used to have a shirt with this on it. Uh, because that's what kind of nerd I am, all right? A contradiction is where you affirm something and deny something and mean the exact same thing, okay? This is actually why our belief in the Trinity is not a contradiction, 
A contradiction would be to say there is one God, there is not one God, but that's not what we say. We say there is one God and that he is three persons. And as long as we mean different things by the word God and persons, it's not a contradiction. We don't even have to know what we mean technically as long as we don't mean the same thing for that to be a contradiction. So what I'm saying is <clears throat> there are no contradictions in Scripture. What you have in Scripture are what some people think are contradictions, but they're not real contradictions. Tucker's example would be a wonderful one. If somebody asked me, what did you do last night? And I told one person I went and played lacrosse. And then someone else said, what did you do last night? And I told that person I went and saw a movie. If I did both of those, that is not a contradiction. Most of the quote-unquote errors that people try to find in the Bible are simply things like that. Okay? Simply things like that. When you read, let, let me give you an example. Let's say that two cars got into a wreck by a stop sign. And the police officers arrive and they start asking different witnesses what happened. One witness might say, a car hit another car. It's kind of like the book of Mark. He just kind of tells you stuff. Pretty blunt. Another would say at 3.32 a.m. on a Tuesday, a car pulled up, didn't see the other car because they were texting, hit the back of the car, and they give you a ton of detail. That's like Luke or something like this. Another car would say something about the car hit this other car because it was God's providence to do so. That's like John or something like this. What they're doing is they're all describing the same event, and they're not contradicting each other. They're choosing to emphasize different details. That's all they're doing. That's most of when people try to criticize the Bible, it's that. So a good example of this is uh, the, the text that uh, Brother Jerry preached last week. There are people that will say, I don't believe the Bible. Why? Well, because in one gospel, it just says the rooster crows, and in the other gospel, it says that he crows twice. You have to crow once to crow twice, right? You can't crow twice if you don't also crow once. That's not a contradiction. A contradiction would be the rooster will crow and the rooster will not crow. Does that make sense? I've given an example here. Let me give you an example from the Bible of what happened to our good friend Judas uh, when he betrays Christ. Matthew 27.5 says this, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. All right, so right here in the Bible, it says that what Judas did was he gave the money back and he hanged himself, Okay. But then if you look at Acts 1, 18 through 19, it says this, talking of Judas, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, uh, Akel Dama, which means uh, that is field of blood. <clears throat> so what they'll say is, look at this contradiction. One says Judas gave the money back. The other one says he bought a field. You Christians, so dumb, so ignorant. Here's the solution, Matthew 27, 6 through 8. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field, or uh, yeah, and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So P, uh, Judas buys it indirectly because that's what the priests and stuff use his money for. So just to recap, one text says he gives the money back. One text says he, built, he buys a field. How did that happen? Well, the money that he gave back was used to buy that field. Does that make sense? How that's not a real contradiction? How that doesn't shake our faith or shake our view of inerrancy or something like this? Okay. You see this all over the Bible. Let me give you another one. This one's a great one. Proverbs 26, four through five. Look at this. <clears throat> Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what some will say is that seems to be a contradiction. Are we to answer the fool or are we not? And the whole point of that passage is that you're going to have to discern. You're going to have to figure out, should I rebuke this fool or should I not? 
Should I rebuke him so he's not wise in his own eyes? Or is this a time where if I do that, I'm going to be like him? But again, not a contradiction because it can be applied with different situations and different circumstances. Number two, <coughs> the Bible can be inerrant and still use ordinary language. The Bible can be inerrant and still use ordinary language. Let me give you an example. Today is my uh, seven-year anniversary with my wife, Katie. Thank you, we've arrived. Uh, I'm kidding. I talked to a couple this last week that was married 47 years, and I'm like, we're just 40 behind. We're close. Uh, and if we are sitting outside today, and let's say the sun is setting, do I say to my wife, honey, look at that beautiful Earth's rotation as it moves around a heliocentric solar system? Is that what I say? Am I going to get kissed with that comment? Is that, a good, is that a good remark? Is that romantic? No. What do I say? I say, babe, look at that beautiful sunset. Now, the sun doesn't technically set. The sun is standing still. We are setting, right? The earth is rotating and going around the sun. But in ordinary human language, we use things like this all the time. So let's allow the biblical authors to use them. What some people say is, I don't believe in inerrancy because the biblical authors say something like a sun setting or the sun moving through the sky. And I'm like, we say that. So give them the freedom to speak in normal, ordinary human language. They're not trying to write a science dissertation. Okay, number three. <clears throat> the Bible can be inerrant and still use rounded off numbers. The Bible can be inerrant and still use rounded off numbers, okay? So what some people think are contradictions are just where one author doesn't care to be as precise as another author. So if I say I'm pretty close to my office, if I say I'm not far from my office, and if I say I'm 52 steps from my office, all of those can equally be true. It just depends on how precise I'm wanting to be. So you'll see this in the Bible. <clears throat> in one account, it will say 7,998 soldiers were killed. And in another account, it will say 8,000 soldiers were killed. Is that a falsehood? No, one is just meaning to generalize to say about 8,000 were killed. The other one's trying to give you the precise number, 7,998 or whatever it is, okay? So again, allow the biblical authors to use normal language. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Allow them to still be humans and try to speak as humans. <coughs> number four, the Bible can be inerrant and can use loose or free quotations. The Bible can be inerrant and use loose or free quotations, when we quote something today, we have a tendency to want to use quotation marks and we have a tendency to want to have absolute precision, right? So if I'm writing a paper, some sort of term paper or something, uh, I better make sure to put that in quotes. I better have a footnote or something and it better be perfect. That, that, those kind of rules with that strict quotation and these kind of things doesn't exist in the first century. So allow the biblical authors to still use loose or free quotations. If they quote, if I have an hour-long conversation with my wife, and you say, what did you and your wife talk about last night? And I say, <coughs> we talked about moving into our new house. That's true. We actually talked for an hour, but that was just meant to be a summary. And so allow the biblical authors to still use loose or free quotations. Okay? Number five, the Bible can be inerrant and still have unusual grammatical constructions. My notes probably have some, all right? <clears throat> when I text my wife and I say, I L-U-V, love, and then just the letter U, okay? Is that sentence false just because I have misspellings and little grammatical marks and these kind of things? No, 
What would be false is if I actually hated her and I sent her a text that said, I love you, right? So just because there are weird grammatical constructions or misspellings in the Bible, that doesn't affect our doctrine of inerrancy. Jeff and I often tease each other on the matter of spelling. Jeff believes spelling is very important. And he's right. You, if you misspell certain words, you can think they're another word. Um, I, however, have a tendency to think that spelling doesn't matter very much, unless you're getting it confused with another word. And the reason I think that is because God thinks that, because there's misspellings in our manuscripts of the Bible. I'm just messing with Jeff. I'm just saying. So, but just because something's misspelled, that doesn't change the truth of the sentence of what it's saying. You, I know you know this because you read text messages every day, all right? <clears throat> Number six, there is a difference between everything the biblical authors thought and what they actually wrote with our doctrine of inerrancy, of everything that the authors thought versus what they wrote. When Jeff taught on uh, inspiration, he was very clear that the, one of the reasons we have to hold that the texts themselves are inspired by God is because there are certain things the biblical authors thought that weren't correct. We're just saying that it didn't make it into their writings. Let me give you an example. Did the Apostle Paul probably think that the world was flat? Yeah, probably. Does he say in any of his letters, the world is flat and you should believe likewise? No, he doesn't. Our doctrine of inerrancy, again, is for the manuscripts. It's not for everything the authors might have thought that we don't have access to in their minds. It's the manuscripts themselves are what are, is inspired and inerrant. And lastly, and Jeff will have a whole lesson on this, the Bible can still be inerrant and have changes in later manuscripts. The Bible can still be inerrant and have changes in later manuscripts. How do we get to the original manuscripts? We're going to have a whole lesson on how we do this, okay? We can do it with quite a bit of precision, so it will actually really encourage you. But just know what some people say is, well, I don't believe in the Bible because we have all these other copies of copies of copies of copies. That's ridiculous. That's like me writing a letter to Carl and somebody misquoting it, and all of a sudden you're saying, I never actually said that to Carl or something like that. That's, that's, it's faulty reasoning when it comes to that. So, Okay. <clears throat> Everybody good so far. Let's do, a little, let's do a little recap. Let's do a little test. I did this with the youth because we were talking about this recently. I want everybody to think of four kinds of sentences. I want everybody to think of four kinds of sentences. Okay, you can write them down or you can just think of them in your head, but I'm gonna call on you, so you be ready, okay? I want you to think of a sentence that's absolutely true. Okay, a sentence that's absolutely true. I want you to think of a sentence that's absolutely false. <clears throat> I want you to think of a sentence that has a little bit of truth and a little bit of falsehood in it, which, by the way, is how the devil typically tempts. A little bit of truth, a little bit of falsehood. And then I want you to think of a sentence that's an outright contradiction. Okay? So let me go over those again. A sentence that's absolutely true, absolutely false, a little truth, little falsehood in there, and then one that's an absolute contradiction. So let me just give you three minutes to think of those things or write them down. You, you can team up with a buddy if you're near someone and you're scared to do this on your own. You can team up. Let's take just two, three minutes to do that, and then I'll ask you about some of these sentences. Okay. I know I said like five minutes, and that was like 30 seconds, but you guys are smart people, so I think we're ready. I think we're ready. <clears throat> okay. Who has a good sentence they would like to share that is a true sentence? If you get this wrong, you'll be embarrassed. Social pressure. Who has a sentence that they think is a true sentence? Ella, go for it. You're a girl. Great. That's true. That's, that's right. That is an example of a true sentence, okay? Give me an example. Someone, raise your hand, and I'll call on you. I decided to let you raise your hand instead, uh, of a sentence that is false. Jack. Yes! 
<laughs> well done. Yes, for Ella to say she's a girl is a true sentence. For Jack to say he is a girl is not a true sentence. Very good. That was well, well played. Touche. Okay. Uh, somebody have a sentence that has a little truth in it, but a little falsehood. Yeah, go for it. Zach is an 80-year-old man. Okay, because my name is Zach. I am a man, but I'm not 80. That's right. That's good. All right. So a little bit of truth, a little bit of falsehood. I've heard people say things like, uh, I really love my dog Scruffy, and their dog's actually named something different. That's right. That's a little bit of truth, a little bit of falsehood. Now, somebody give me a good outright contradiction. Yeah, a cat is a dog, or you could even say a cat is not a cat, right? But, which is what it would be if it's a dog. That's one. Who else has one? Yeah, the red car's blue or the red car's not red, right? Because <clears throat> you could have a car that's both red and blue. But yes, that's right. Typically, if a car is all red, then it can also not all be blue. That's right. So red car is not a red car? Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. I am not myself today. It all depends on what you mean, right? So if you mean, this is where it's important to understand a contradiction. <clears throat> if you mean that I am literally not the same human being that I am today, that'd be a contradiction. But typically when we say that phrase, we mean something like, I don't feel like I typically feel. And in that sense, it's not a contradiction. I'll give you another example. If, uh, let's say I have a son who's 17, and I say, he's a man, but he's not a man. Well, there's a way I can mean that as a contradiction, but there's a way I don't have to. I can say he's a man and that he's male. And when I say he's not a man, I mean he's not a grown man. He's still a boy or something like this. <clears throat> so it all depends on what you mean. So I have us do this little exercise all to say this. The Bible contains only sentences of the first kind that we did. Out of all the sentences, four sentences we just did, totally two, totally false, a little bit of truth, a little bit of falsehood and contradiction, the Bible contains only the first kind, totally true sentences. The Bible does not speak falsehoods. It does not speak contradictions. It does not mix falsehood with God's word. Remember, it's purified seven times in a furnace. It's perfect. God's The law of the Lord is perfect. It only contains true sentences. Okay, now, you'll notice if everybody has your packet, <coughs> I, this is a thicker packet than we typically give out, and here's why. In 1978, more than tw uh, 200 evangelical leaders got together and signed what is called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. All right, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And it is one of the clearest expressions of what we believe when we talk about the Bible being inerrant, okay? So I've given it to you. It's only about three and a half pages. It'll take you like seven minutes to read or something. It doesn't take long to read, but it's a series of affirmations and denials of what we believe when we talk about the Bible. So I encourage you to take that home. If you get just a few minutes, maybe it's before bed, maybe it's <clears throat> while you're waiting for, you know, uh, lunch at the restaurant or something like that, read through that. It is a really, really helpful uh, summary of what we believe when it comes to inerrancy. I'm not going to read all of it right now because it's pretty long. I want to, us just to look at a few articles together, okay? <clears throat> a few articles together. Look at Article 3. Everybody look at Article 3. <clears throat> article 3 says this. We affirm that the written word is entire, I'm sorry, in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation or only becomes revelation in encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. I'm going over some of these more difficult ones to talk about what it means. When we say the Bible is God's word and it is inerrant, what we mean is that when we read the Bible, that is revelation. That is who, we are reading who God is. That is his, if I were to sit down and God were to talk to me, 
in this room today, that's the same thing that's going on when I'm sitting down and I'm reading the Scriptures. It is revelation. It's not merely a record of revelation. It's not God revealed himself to Israel a long time ago, and now I'm just reading about how God revealed himself to Israel a long time ago. It doesn't just become revelation when I read it. There's this idea in what's called neo-orthodoxy that when I sit down and I read the Bible, it's not revelation, but as God talks to me and reveals himself to me when I read it, then it becomes revelation. That's not what we mean. What we mean is it itself is the revelation of God. It itself is the revelation of God. Okay, let's look at a few more articles. Look at Article 10. (coughs) Look at Article 10. Again, the Bible is our sole final source of authority. I'm not saying that this is like on par with the Bible. What I'm saying is this is a good summary of what the Bible does teach about itself. Article 10. Let me read this. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential elements of the Christian faith is affected by this absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the assertions of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. Again, our definition is that as God gives His Word, those original manuscripts are what's perfect. Our job, in that we have copies of copies of copies of copies of those manuscripts, is to get back to that original the best we can. That's our job. Again, Jeff will talk about this, but I want you to know that just because there are a bunch of copies, it doesn't challenge our view of biblical inerrancy. It doesn't challenge our view of biblical inerrancy. Okay? Let's look at a few more. Article, oh man, Roman numerals are tough. 13. I actually saw there was uh, somebody on the radio recently. I I guess I didn't see them on the radio. Uh, I heard them on the radio. And they were trying to sing this song, like for little kids, about the wheels on the big rig truck. All right? So you go to your little kids, and you're like, okay, let's go one, two, three, four, and they get to 18 wheels on the the big rig truck. And then it's like, let's do only even numbers. And they're like, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12 wheels on the big rig truck. And then they go, Roman numerals. They're like, I, 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 V, 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 I, V, and they do this whole thing of getting, it's just difficult, all right? So 13 says this, we affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture. We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena, such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. That is a fantastic definition of what they're... Here's all they're saying in that. They're saying we can still affirm inerrancy even though... They're saying we can affirm inerrancy. Inerrancy is not negated by the fact that sometimes there's loose or free quotations. Sometimes there's rounded off numbers. Sometimes they're not trying to be as precise as maybe we want them to be or something like that. You can't take 21st century technical scientific writing and say, I'm so mad people thousands of years ago didn't write just like we did as Americans, and therefore now they're at fault. That's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. And then lastly, we'll look at one more, and then I'll have the Jeff Ashley come up here. <clears throat> article, oh man, what is that, 19? XIX, 19? Okay, I'm, see, I'm, I'm growing every day, learning a little more. 
For some reason, I don't understand how a system of counting that uses minusing things is helpful, but that's okay. Let me read this one. We affirm that a, we, I'm sorry, we affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy, you see them using both words there. They're trying to say that it's inerrant when it comes to faith and practice and everything, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. We further affirm that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that such confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences both to the individual and to the church. Here's essentially what they're saying. If you deny inerrancy, it's going to poison the rest of your spiritual life. It doesn't, though, necessarily mean that you're lost. There are people that really do love Christ and really do believe in his cross and really do believe in his resurrection and deny inerrancy, and though they're off on that doctrine, they are still believers, okay? But because they're off on that doctrine, are they going to have a vibrant spiritual life? Are there things they're going to be off on? There are things they're going to be off on. There are things they're going to be off on. The only reason I mention that one is we have a tendency sometimes to assume that salvation is simply an affirmation of certain doctrinal principles. Now, it is that. You can't deny the deity of Christ or deny his resurrection or something like that and be a Christian. But there are other doctrines that, though very, very important, are not necessary for salvation. And this would be one of those doctrines, okay? This would be one of those doctrines.